How are we doing, church? Doing okay? If you got your Bibles, I hope you do. John 14 is where we're going to be for the majority of the time. It's going to be quite the emotional roller coaster this morning, folks. So uh, get, your, uh, get your tissues and your Bible, and here we go. I want to say Merry Christmas. Normally, I, I'm kind of breaking my own rule here. Normally, I reserve Merry Christmas after Thanksgiving. Gretchen starts Christmas music about mid-August at my house, and so uh, uh, I, I start like the week of. But anyway, uh, that doesn't line up well with our series. What we're going to be doing over the next several weeks from now until Christmas Eve is we are going to be unpacking um, sort of the names, but really like the titles of Jesus according to the Scriptures. There's some very familiar passages in the Scripture. Even if you're brand new to Bible study, if you've ever seen the Peanuts Christmas special, then you have heard these Scriptures before. And it goes all the way back to, uh, to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Maybe you've heard this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. Praise God. All right, just in our current circumstances, uh, thank God for that part. But that's a different sermon. And his name shall be called. That's the title of our series. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then if you hop over to the book of Matthew, and you don't have to jump to all these places. Some of you haven't found Isaiah yet. Just hang in there, okay? <clears throat> in the book of Matthew, it's the story of the birth of Jesus from, from, his, from his earthly father's perspective, from Joseph's perspective. And it says this. It says, Behold, and the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew is quoting Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 there. Then it goes on to say, And when Joseph woke up from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So from now until uh, Christ, our Christmas Eve service, we have like 115 of them or something like that, okay? We're going to be unpacking these titles of Jesus. So what Isaiah is talking about and what, what Matthew quotes Isaiah on is that because of Christmas, because of the incarnation of Christ, because the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, because of little baby Jesus in a manger, because of that, then we can know Him as Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, to understand this, you've got to have some sort of understanding of the Trinity. And the reason I say that is because the Trinity, the understanding that there's one God in three persons, is not just a theological nuance that preachers like me like to bring up, but it is the eternal reality on which our faith stands. It, it matters a lot. Now, the moment I begin to try to describe and discuss the Trinity, if you lean in and you, and you really try, your head will blow up. Because there's just no possible way to fully understand this idea and reality that there is one God eternally existent from eternity past to eternity future as one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But you've got to at least sort of lean into it and understand some, some realities because of that reality. But again, we'll never be able to fully grasp it. It would be like taking a Dixie cup down to the Atlantic Ocean and trying to get all that in there. It just won't fit. So when we take these little pea brains of ours, and some of you are brilliant people but still have a little pea brain in comparison to the who God is, and say, I'm going to try to get all of that into here. It just won't fit. But by faith, take a couple steps with me. There is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And this has incredible meaning as to what it means to not only be a Christian, but to be a human. One thing it means is that God is a community in and of himself. That God has been in this perfect love relationship with God for, forever. So when the Bible says things like in 1 John uh, 4, 8, that God is love, you see, love has to have a subject and an object. Well, the subject and object of God's love is God's love for himself. That God's love for God's self is what it means for God to be loved. And that means that God has been in this perfect love relationship forever, which also means that God is not in need of us. I, I don't think this was the intention of preachers that I heard when I was growing up. But a lot of times the way preachers would describe Christ's love for us, it sounded a whole lot like a single girl on Valentine's Day just wishing somebody would love him. Please just love me. That is not what God feels like at all. That God is love and the receiver of God's own love for eternity. 
which means he didn't need us. He, it's not like he was sitting around heaven and be like, man, I got so much time and space. What am I going to do with it? I know. I will create a group of people that will sing me songs on the weekends and then disappoint me the rest of my life, okay? That is not what he needed. Pastor Britt mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. He said, so what is, the, what is the most loving thing an almighty God could do? Well, God's love for God's self spills out into creation, overflows into us, and he creates image bearers, us, to be able to experience the love and joy that God has for God's self. You see, what, what Isaiah is talking about here is that because of Christmas, Because of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who eternally existed, we have access to the entire Godhead. This is a part of what Isaiah is talking about. Because a child is born and because to us a son is given, then we can know God, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And the access point by which we can know the eternal God is because of Emmanuel. That means God with us. That at Christmas, God stepped down out of heaven and became one of us. And he came not on his first shot here at Christmas a couple thousand years ago. He did not come to reign as king, but he came to serve as savior. And that's what the name of Jesus means. You see, so we have to have this understanding of what the Trinity is to have an idea of what Christmas is all about. You see, it's through that access point of that baby in a manger who did not stay a baby in a manger, but he grew up to be a man, the perfect God-man, to die on the cross for our sins. And when he says, it is finished, you and I have access to the Almighty God to the wonderful counselor, to the mighty God, to the everlasting father, to the prince of peace because of Emmanuel and his name is Jesus. And so we're gonna spend the next bunch of weeks unpacking what each one of those names or titles of God means. And so I think, so today we're gonna talk about the wonderful counselor, the wonderful counselor. And if I wanna, if I wanna talk about the wonderful counselor, Jesus is gonna tell us how he Individually, Jesus could be the wonderful counselor to every single person who believes in Jesus. And so if you'll hop over to John chapter 14, what we're going to see here is that, <clears throat> is that Jesus is going to promise his believers the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is how God the Son will be a wonderful counselor to every single person who believes. Now, here's what I know just happened. The moment I mentioned that we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, the Pentecostals in the house just got excited. All right? They're like, well, it's about time because I've been waiting to wave this banner since July. All right? Well, just settle down there, okay? Relax. And then the Baptists got nervous. They were like, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it when I came to a place with the haze and the lights and, the, you know, I just got to hear. Can you give me a minute, all right? Can you just relax? And then the Catholics are like, we have no idea what you're talking about. All right, so uh, here we go. We're a movement for all people. So as we talk about who the Holy Spirit is, the, the person that I would want to hear describe the third person of the Trinity is the second person of the Trinity. And so if we go to John chapter 14, This will be how Jesus describes how he will be the wonderful counselor to every single person. John chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, the reason he starts here is because they are in the midst of very troubling times. They are in the midst of very troubling times. Over the next 24 hours, Jesus is going to be betrayed, arrested, accused, abused, and hung on a tree. And so, He knows that his disciples are in a very, very troubling time. And it's in that context that he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In other words, uh, heaven is not an idea, but a place. Pastor Britt covered this a couple weeks ago. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you will also be. And you know the way where I am going. And then Thomas, remember doubting Thomas? Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Then verse six, a very, very famous verse. And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. 
If you had known me, you would have, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying that he is the access point by which you can know the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, there are many, many people that are kind of pro-Jesus these days, right? They like Jesus, they like what he stands for, they like his teaching, but they do not like the claims of the gospel that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I get it. People ask me all the time, isn't that a bit narrow? Very, very narrow. Embarrassingly narrow. I'll just admit it. I mean, I do this stuff for a living. When I'm on a plane and I ask, every time I get on a plane, I just look to the person next to me and I say, so what do you do for a living? And then they tell me. And then they have to ask, right? They have to ask. So what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a gospel preacher, so you know we got to do this. That's what I do, all right? (laughs) And then if they don't want to talk, then I just believe they're not elect and I get to watch my movie. That's what I do, all right? So... Just guilt-free flying then after that. But it, inevitably, it always comes up that, but, but is it, how can you believe that Jesus is the only way to know God? I'm going, well, it's not that I believe it. It's just that he said it. See, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like the mailman. I don't write it. I just deliver it. So if I were making up the rules, I'd be totally cool with, hey, all skate, everybody in. You know, no matter what you believe, no matter who you are, just come on to the dance floor. Here we go. The problem with that is that Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, theologically, I can understand and explain that because nobody else lived a perfect life that could pay the debt that you and I owed except for Jesus. But in regards to what we're talking about here, the access point by which we know God is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. In other words, Jesus goes on to say, if you know me, you know the Father, and if you know the Father, you know me which means you cannot worship one-third of the Trinity. You cannot simultaneously say, I accept God the Father and reject God the Son. God essentially is saying, then we're not talking about the same gods because I and the Father am one. The other thing I think that Jesus is trying to do here with his disciples is get them to understand that he and the Father are one, that the Father, God the Father, and God the Son are one, so that as they begin to understand that, then when he introduces the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, then they'll at least have a kind of a jumping off point. And so, verse 8, Philip, he's going to ask a question. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. In other words, uh, Philip doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. And listen, if, if, you, if you're attending church right now, uh, this should make you feel better about you. If you've got questions about the Bible and you're like, I just don't understand it and that's complicated, hey, good news, you could make a really great disciple. Because I know you're a rock star and you attend church about every other week. Praise God. These brothers, they ate dinner with Jesus, God the Son, every day for three years and they still don't get it, Okay. And so Philip's like, hey, if you just show us the Father, that'll be enough, verse 9. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Again, what Jesus is establishing here is the oneness of God the Father and God the Son so that when he talks about God the Holy Spirit, then they will understand that there's one God in three persons. In other words, what Jesus is saying to Philip is, all right, all right, boys, you guys want to see the Father? And like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, close your eyes, and on three, I'm going to show you the Father. Ready? One, two, three. Ta-da! Here he is. They still don't get it. All right, so. So he goes on to say, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Again, he's establishing the oneness of the Trinity. Verse 12. Truly, I truly, 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 I say to you, he's going to shift gears here a little bit. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now, just stop right there for a second. Anybody here that would say, yeah, I believe in him. Regardless of where you are kind of on the spectrum of your faith, if you're a brand new believer, still have a million questions, or if you grew up in Sunday school with Moses, wherever you are on the spectrum, Jesus says, if you consider yourself a believer, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. 
and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Do you hear the promise of Jesus here? Listen, church. Jesus Jesus promises that you will do greater works than he did. Now, can we just review real quick some of the works that Jesus did? He did some pretty stinking awesome works, did he not? I mean, anybody here ever walked on water? That'd be pretty legit, wouldn't it? Can you imagine? Listen, if I could walk on water, that would be our primary church growth strategy. That would be it. All you would have to do, we would do services every day of the week, and there would be no sermons. The whole thing would last like 30 seconds, right? And you would tell your friends, you got to come to my church so you can believe in Jesus. And people are like, oh, I don't know if I believe this. They go, no, it's crazy. Here's what happens. They set the baptistry up in the front, and our pastor stands on one side, and he goes, all right, here we go. And then he just walks to the other side and says, who wants to believe? That would be the whole thing. That would be legit. You ever walked on water? Uh-uh. You ever, you ever raised somebody from the dead? I never have. You ever fi- fed 5,000 people? I can barely keep the four Martins at my place fed. You understand what I mean? You ever cast out a demon? I sent a seventh grader home from camp one time. That's the closest I've ever come, all right? And Jesus says, all that was cool, but you, believers, are going to do greater works than I did. Now, now, based on that, I don't think it can mean greater uh, in the uniqueness of the expression of the power of God. I think what it means is, is greater in scope. You see, when God the Son became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, there are some attributes of God that Jesus sort of hit pause on. See Philippians chapter 2. And one of them is the omnipresence of God. God is omnipotent. It means he's all-powerful. He's omniscient. It means he knows everything. And and he's omnipresence, which means he's he's in all places at all times. But when Jesus of Nazareth is walking around, he cannot be in all places at all times. But a part of what he's going to explain to us later by the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit is that through the Holy Spirit, he can be in all places at all times in the hearts and lives of every single believer which means that his work is not limited to just one man in the Middle East, but his, his work is, is multiplied throughout the church. My friend, a guy named J.D. Greer, is a pastor in, in North Carolina. He wrote a book called Jesus Continued. While the Spirit of God in you is greater than Jesus beside you. And, and see, a lot of times, especially for churches like us, we have a hard time with that. Because think about it. I mean, we are pro-Jesus around here at some 1122, right? We love some Jesus, all right? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And what Jesus is going to say in a little bit is, it's good that I am leaving you because I am sending something better, the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God in you is actually better than Jesus standing beside you. Which makes you scratch your head. You're like, are you sure? Because think about it. Think about if you could have Jesus beside you. Like you could walk up in the morning, wake up in the morning, you could text Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what's up, bro? What you doing today? I'm about to roll by your house. Sweet, because I got some questions. And you could have some questions and ask Jesus. Can you imagine? Literally be like, hey, man, should I go out with her? And he would say, you don't even need to ask that, do you? Right? I mean, he would just give you perfect advice every time. Or if you need a miracle at work, maybe he could do that miracle for you. Or maybe you're at the tailgate and you run out of wine. And I know all of you drink wine at your tailgates, but just go with me here, right? And you just, and you bring a big bucket of water, be like, hey, dog, uh, I was reading and some John. What you think? You hook it up? Want to? No? Okay. You could. If you came home one day and your dog had died, you could call Jesus. He could swing by and he could resurrect your dog. If you came home and your cat was dead, he could help you dig a hole to put it in it. I'm just telling you. You think that would be sweet? And what Jesus is saying here in the promise of the wonderful counselor is that when Jesus was in his earthly ministry, he basically could just counsel wonderfully one person or one group of people at one time in one place. But through the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit, then he can be the wonderful counselor to every single believer at all times. Let me ask you, Do you need a wonderful counselor? You ever had some bad counsel? 
I don't mean like a bad counselor you paid for. I'm talking about just some bad counsel. You see, bad counsel we get all the time. Bad counsel is when well-meaning people tell you what you want to hear or they tell you what they want to say versus telling you what, they, what you need to hear, even if it's hard for them to say. And the wonderful counselor gives that perfect counsel every time. You see, bad counsel sounds like, no, really, you should lease it. That's a good idea. Or just pay it off later. Or act now and you can double your money. Or I know she's crazy, but go out with her again because she's kind of hot. That's bad, bad counsel. And then imagine, imagine always getting wonderful counsel. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit a helper or a comforter. Like just when you need help, here is the perfect helper that you have access to. The Greek word for Holy Spirit is paraclete. It literally means advocate in a court of law. That where if you were in a time of trouble, then you could request a paraclete, an advocate, and they would walk with you through that trial until you were declared innocent. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Now again, anytime we talk about the Holy Spirit, the, the Pentecostals get excited, the Presbyterians don't know what to do, the Catholics, you know how that goes. And the problem, here, here's, here's why. Uh, a friend of mine asked me what I'm preaching on today, and I was like, uh, the person who work of the Holy Spirit. And his immediate question was, so are, does your church speak in tongues? So here, here's the thing. Um, what Jesus does, as we look through John 14, Jesus spends very little time talking about the unique and amazing, and amazing gifts of the Spirit in some believers, but he spends all of his time talking about what is common to every believer. And so what I think, I think that, that we need to spend our time talking about the person and promise and work of the Spirit, not just the gifts of the Spirit. And the times in the Scriptures where Paul, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when he talks most about the gift of the Spirit, it's because the church in Corinth has elevated the gifts of the Spirit over the giver itself. And so what is, what is, what is available to every single one of us is the Spirit of God. And, and let me just be real clear here. There is one baptism of the Spirit. The word baptism just means dip, dunk, submerge. So the moment that you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, then you have all of the Spirit that you could ever have. The key question is, does He have all of you? And then in the book of Acts, there are several times, and Romans and Corinthians, there are several times where some believers are, quote, filled with the Spirit, which I believe just means they were so surrendered at that point in their life that God was able to manifest himself more uniquely in their lives. And so instead of talking about the, the, the unique gifts of the Spirit, because you know what the number one sign gift is of the Spirit of God? Love. For if I speak in the tongues of angels and of men, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, um, the crazy thing too is when Jesus prays in John 17, when he's praying for the church, he talks about the spirit coming to the church would be the primary way whereby we are unified. And yet it seems that the spirit of God, sermons and beliefs about the spirit are often the places where we are divided. I remember when I got to college and I was trying to figure out like what college ministry to be a part of. I go to this non-denominational college ministry and I walk in and people would kind of feel you out. One of the first days I was there and I was kind of checking it out and, uh, and somebody asked me, they said this, they said, so you're a Christian? I go, yeah, I'm a Christian. I got saved at this camp, da 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 And they go, are you full gospel? Uh, hope so. I don't think I signed up for the three-quarter gospel route. Okay, I don't, I don't even know what you mean. But those were labels by which people could kind of categorize you. And, uh, and I just, I, I, know, I know we're all over the spectrum here, okay? I know we're all over the spectrum. Anytime I talk about the Spirit, the Baptists get nervous. And, and I get it. I grew up Southern Baptist. And we kind of believed in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. And we believed that the Spirit was there, but we kind of treated him like your weird uncle at a, at a reunion, Right? Like, we know he's part of the family, and it could be awesome or it could get crazy, so we're not sure that we want to hang out with him much. Okay, listen, the Spirit of God is not weird. You're weird, and if you're weird, then you make everything weird. And God bless you. You're some of the happiest people, and you don't even know I'm talking to you right now, but your guy sitting next to you does. That's fine. Praise God. But the Spirit's not weird. Um, the Spirit of God is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. And we ascribe things to the Spirit of God that the Bible does not ascribe. I mean, I love it. Well-meaning people, I know what you mean. You come up to me and be like, oh, the Spirit was really moving this morning in worship. 
or the room was full and we played your two favorite songs. It's one of those two, okay? So the Spirit of God is not just like a feeling. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not a potion where he kind of leaks out during the week and you kind of got to get come and topped off on the weekend. That's not how the Spirit works. And a lot of folks, a lot of folks come and tell me things that I need to do because the Spirit of God has told you to tell me what I need to do. And you typically have proof. My favorite one was... Um, was when I got a letter from a girl at our church. Some of you know that uh, Tebow attends this church when he's in town, and I got, uh, and so I've gotten to know him, whatever, and, and so this girl sends me a letter and says, the Holy Spirit has told me that you need to introduce me to Tim Tebow <laughs> because we're gonna get married. I go, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's the Spirit of God. I think it's another spirit, and I don't, I don't think, and she said, no, 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 no. It's undeniable. Okay, how, how's that? She goes, because I was, I, was, I was at the beach, and I was driving in my car, and I was praying about this. God, if I'm to marry Tebow, then I need a sign. And right in that moment, I looked up in the sky, and sure enough, it was orange and blue. <laughs> and the stoplight that I was at turned from red to green. And you know he played for the Jets. And then our favorite song, I don't think you have a favorite song if you've never met a person, but whatever. Our favorite song came on the radio, and just then I looked down, and it was 1122. I'm like, darling, I don't think that sounds like the spirit. I think it sounds like the preamble to a restraining order myself. Okay, so. So be careful what you blame on the spirit. And then there's some other church folks, and they wouldn't recognize the spirit if he woke them up to do the quiet time this morning. Okay? Uh, some people in their life that kind of look like Weekend at Bernie's. I don't know if you remember that movie. It's about the guy who was dead, but they had to keep him alive to get through the party for the weekend, so they're just kind of propping him up and, you know, putting him in the boat, and he's water skiing and stuff. And there's a lot of people that call themselves Christians, and that's kind of what you look like. You kind of weekend at Bernie's. There's no life at all, but you're doing all the stuff. So what we want to do here is see what Jesus says about the Spirit in John chapter 14. In the midst of don't let your hearts be troubled, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to lay out four things that the Spirit does in all believers. These are not the only four things that he does, but he at least does these four things. All right, now that was all intro, so now we'll start preaching. Here we go, verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, paraclete, the Holy Spirit right here. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. He is talking about his death and resurrection there. Verse 20. And in that day... You will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I in you. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Notice that love precedes doing the commandments here. Verse 22, and then Judas, in parentheses, it says, not Iscariot, which just makes me giggle a little bit. How bummer would it be if your name is Judas because of Judas Iscariot? And so I think every time John starts to write down something about Judas, this Judas is like, whoa, 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 make sure everybody knows that I'm not Iscariot. Okay, so that happens. So Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord... <clears throat> How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is, this is the way that the, the God of the universe dwells inside of us. You see, um, God is kind of shifting gears in the way that he's going to interact with his people. In the Old Testament, God essentially watched over his people. And sometimes he would show up and manifest himself in, a, in an angel or a burning bush or something like that. But essentially, in the Old Testament, God watches over his people. In the Gospels, God walks around with his people through the person of Jesus Christ. And in the, in the, in the epistles, like the, the books of the Bible after the Gospels, then, then God lives inside his people. And then there will come a day according to what Pastor Britta taught a couple weeks ago in the book of Revelation, where heaven is cracked open and God dwells with his people. And so this is a part of what Jesus is talking about, that I am going to dwell, my Father and I through the Holy Spirit are going to dwell in you. 
Verse 24, and whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, again, the paraclete, the advocate, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Again, there are four things that the Spirit does as the wonderful counselor made possible by Jesus. Number one is this, is that he is present with you and in you, that the Almighty God is present through the person of the Holy Spirit, that he is present with you and in you. Jesus says, I'm gonna send you a helper to be with you forever, and you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So when the Bible says in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter six, that your body is a temple, I have very good news. That has nothing to do with what you look like in a bathing suit. Can I get a witness, all right? That is not what that means. What it means is this, is that God used to dwell in the temple in the holy of holies, the secret place of God. But when Jesus on the cross says it is finished and and our sin payment was paid for, then an earthquake cracks right down the heart of Jerusalem and it tears this curtain between the people of God and the presence of God in two. And then at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls on every single believer, then God's local address here on earth is inside of every single believer. That's what it means that your body is a temple. You see, the Wizard of Oz taught us, look inside you and you will find yourself and that'll get you a trip to Kansas. Jesus teaches you as a believer, look inside yourself and you find the presence of God and that gets you a trip to heaven. That's a lot better. And so Jesus is saying here that God, the Spirit is a deposit in every single believer. And this matters a bunch. You see, he says it in the Great Commission. The Great Commission is the last thing Jesus says before he ascends to the right hand of God the Father, and he puts the church on mission. And and a lot of people get the mission of God in the Great Commission, but they miss out on the promise of God in the Great Commission. He says this in Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then here's the promise. And behold, Jesus says to his people, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then you know what he did after that? He floated up into heaven, which would be a little confusing if you're paying attention to what he's saying. Would it not? If I looked at you and said, I am gonna be with you until the end of today, and then I walked away, you would think, I don't think I understood what you were saying. But what Jesus is saying is, in order for me to fulfill the witness promise, I gotta go sit at the right hand of God the Father so I can send you the one that can be with you always, even to the ends of the age. Which means this, God is with you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And not just with you next to you, like with you inside of you. And his presence guarantees at least three things. The list is much longer, but the presence of God in you through the power of the Holy Spirit guarantees you at least three things. One is power. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what that power means is this, the power of God in you enables you to do what you could not do on your own. And that doesn't mean like seal the deal or or make a touchdown, whatever. But the power of God by the presence of the Holy Spirit in you gives you the ability to do things that you could never do on your own. Ready? Like forgive, like forgive. Like you wanna, you wanna dole out judgment and yet you forgive and you think, how in the world did I do that? Because the power of the Holy Spirit was in you and you were able to do what you could not do on your own. Or like put up with your family over the holidays, okay? That is because of the power of God in you. You wanna say amen, but you know she's sitting there with you and you won't, that's fine. <laughs> Which leads to two more, at least two more things that the presence of the Holy Spirit grants to us. The presence of the Holy Spirit grants to us strength and courage, strength and courage. Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be afraid, for the Lord your God is 
with you. Remember, we studied this a year ago or something, that Joshua, this great leader, is standing. He's standing at the Jordan River. He's looking over to the promised land that God has promised them. The problem is the enemy lives in that land, and they're bigger, they're faster, they're stronger. And three times in the first chapter of Joshua, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Why? Because he's weak and afraid, he's weak and afraid, he's weak and afraid. But what he does not tell him is, Joshua, you be strong and courageous and then give him a little pep talk. Because you're a snowflake and you're puppy's breath and you're a skittle and you're smart enough and doggone it, people like you. That is not what he does. He does not say be strong and courageous because you're kind of strong, bro, and you're pretty courageous. It's not about him. He says be strong and courageous for I am with you. You see, when we begin to understand that, that the Spirit of God is in us, then God promises us power and strength and courage, not because you're powerful and strong and courageous, but because the Lord is with you. In 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul says this to this young pastor, Timothy, for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Are you afraid? And the Bible says here's what you need to understand, that that because of the presence of God, there's nothing to be afraid of. Why? Because God is love and perfect love casts out fear and the perfect love of God dwells inside the heart and soul of every single believer and so there is no place for fear there. So the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit accessed by the person and work of Jesus Christ gives us power and strength and courage. The second thing, at least the second thing that the Spirit does is he tells you the truth He says, I'm going to give you a helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, that the Holy Spirit teaches us truth and always tells us the truth. And let me tell you why this is important, because we have an enemy and he is the father of lies. Let me take it out of the theological and just put it in the practical. Do you ever get the whispers? You ever get these little thoughts, these little sentences, these little comments in your head and you're like, where did that come from? Did I just have bad pizza last night? Is this true? Is this what's going on? That is the enemy of God. That is Satan himself, the father of lies, trying to get you to believe things that are not true. We live in a world that wants you to believe things that are not true. This world wants you to believe that stuff satisfies. I've got terrible news for you. You were seven weeks away from one of the most dissatisfying days of your whole year, and it's Jesus' birthday. Once again, when the presents are all done, here's what you think, parents. Me too. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a self-proclaimed hypocrite, which makes me not a hypocrite, okay? I understand. At this point, it's not about what I get, right? Because I'm a parent, whatever. You don't get anything anymore. But I have this thing in my mind that I think I'm going to buy my children something, and they are going to be grateful. <laughs> what am I thinking? Gretchen was looking stressed the other day. Why are you so stressed, baby? She said, Thanksgiving's coming up. I'm like, why are you supposed to be thankful? How can you be stressed about what you're supposed to be thankful about? She said, I'm going to spend nine hours cooking this nine-course meal, and my kids are going to eat one roll. (laughs) You see, the world wants us to know that stuff satisfies. It is a lie. The world wants you to think that you were a cosmic accident. For two generations, we've been teaching our children that they are nothing more than animals. Now we act surprised that our world acts like a bunch of animals. The world wants you to believe that your past defines you. The world wants you to believe that you are really not lovable unless you're beautiful or successful. But God gives us the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth, that you have an advocate, the Holy Spirit, a paraclete, that is gonna help you distinguish between the lies of this world and the truth of God. And the good news is, is that the truth of God is found in the word of God. The reason that I teach out of the Bible every single week, and I don't just give you 10 ideas from Joby because those would be horrible. Anything that you discern is just my opinion. Please just throw it away. But we stand on the reliability, the trustworthiness, and the truth of the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, when you translate that word breath, In the Bible, it gets a little confusing in both Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament word is ruah. The New Testament word is pneuma. 
And they both can be translated spirit or breath. So literally, as, as Paul is talking to Timothy, he says, he says, all scriptures are spirited by God. Why? Because he is the spirit of truth. Now, does teaching out of this always make me popular? <laughs> We've been down that road a couple times already, have we not? No. But it is the true word of God. And, and the reason that we, we need to know it, the reason that it is so popular is because if you remember when Jesus was tempted in the desert and the enemy was trying to lie to him, every single time the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, responded with, it is written. He stood on the truth of the word of God. And so the world says stuff satisfies. And the word of God says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit a soul? And, and the world says that you are a cosmic accident. And the word of God says, no, 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 no. You are fearfully and wonderfully made that his works are wonderful and you should know that full well. And the world says your past identifies you. And the word of God says, no, no, no. You are adopted as a son. And if a son, then an heir of the almighty God. And the world says that you're not really lovable unless you're beautiful or successful. And the word of God says, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. The spirit of God is the one that tells us the truth. The third thing that he does is that the Holy Spirit teaches. Jesus says that he, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, the teacher at 1122 is the Holy Spirit. I know you say some very, very polite things to me sometimes, and I'm not discouraging you from that. I can use the encouragement, all right? The Bible says encourage one another as long as it is today. So today, you can encourage me. I would receive it. But here's what I know. I can't teach you anything. There is nothing that I could teach you unless the Spirit of God has the scales fall off your eyes, softens your heart, and He teaches you. That's why I say with all accuracy that every single message I ever give at best is moderately delivered and exceptionally received because I have a helper when I'm preaching and it is the Holy Spirit in you teaching you everything that he wants you to know. Also, some of you have experienced this, have you not? Have you ever read over a passage that you used to not understand and then you're just sitting there like wherever, it's sitting on your bed and you're reading it and you go, I think I know what that means. That is the Spirit of God teaching you the word of God. Praise God. And then also, have you ever read stuff and you don't know what it means? And you're like, God, it's so confusing. Maybe the Spirit of God is not ready to teach you that part yet. You can kind of let yourself off the hook here. And here's why. Is your problem in your faith walk with Jesus, is it a problem of information that you just don't know enough yet? Or is it a problem of application applying what you already know? You see, and then not only that, he says that, that the Spirit of God will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Some of you brand new Christians, and there's a whole thousands of them here at 1122, and you have experienced this. You, you got a coworker, and they come to you to gossip about somebody else. And just a little while in your past, you would just gossip right there with them. And then you open your mouth, and out of your mouth comes, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you're like, what just happened to me? I wasn't there coaching you. Your disciple group leader wasn't coaching you. You didn't even know you memorized Romans 8.1. And you opened your mouth and the Spirit of God reminded you of what he had already taught you. And then you think, holy moly, I might actually be a Christian. You might. It's amazing. Okay? That is the role of the Spirit. He is the teacher. And not only that, he brings to your remembrance all that he said to you. You know what Christians are famous for? Forgetting what God did yesterday because you're so anxious about what he is yet to do tomorrow. And the Spirit of God teaches you what he would have you know. And then the fourth thing is this. According to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit makes peace possible. The Holy Spirit makes peace possible. Jesus closes with this. He says, peace I leave with you. Now think about this. Where Jesus is going in the next few hours is to the cross via the Garden of Gethsemane where he sweats drops of blood, where he says he falls down because he feels like he's going to die. He's going to bear the sin of the entire world. He's going to be betrayed by one of his best friends. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be lied about. He's going to be spit on. And in that moment, he says, peace I leave to you. That is why I assure you peace is not a feeling. Peace is not a feeling. 
that the peace of God by the Holy Spirit is not because you got God bumps when you saw some kind of sappy video. You see, it's actually in those turbulent times that the presence of God gives you shalom is what the Hebrew word is. And Jesus says, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, Jesus wants to distinguish what he is offering, which is peace, and what this world has to offer. The best thing this world has to offer, the best thing it has to offer is happiness. And I'm not anti-happiness, all right? If I get to choose, I'm choosing happiness, all right? It's better than sadness, it is. But, but happiness is solely based on our happenings. This last week, Gretchen and I are in Chicago. We've never been to Chicago. It's a great city, all right? It's cold. Holy moly, it's cold. I've never heard anybody in their whole life go, you know what, when I retire, I'm moving up to Chicago. They all moved down here with us, okay? And I see why. It's cold. And, uh, and, and it was great. What, I was speaking at a conference, and Gretchen gets my list of where I get invited to speak, and then she d- decides where the Spirit is leading her to go. And uh, it's always cool places like Chicago and L.A. It's never like Missouri. She's like, you, go ahead, you and the Spirit have fun. I ain't going to Missouri. So that's how it works, all right? So we go to Chicago, and here's all you do in Chicago, okay? You eat. As soon as I told people, I'm going to Chicago, I would get emails of lists of restaurants. Here's where you got to eat. And so you're sitting there eating in Chicago, talking about where you're going to eat next in Chicago. And then when you get done, you walk to that place, and then, and then you eat again. That's what you do. And I realize why there's so much shopping in Chicago, because after that first meal, you have to buy new pants. That's what happens, okay? <laughs> so you just buy pants on your way to your next meal. All right, and so here is happiness. So we ate in some amazing restaurants and good views and all this stuff. And we're at this one place, Shaw's Seafood, something or another, because when you think seafood, you think Chicago, but I don't know who made our reservations. But that's where we are. It was great. And I ordered king crab legs. Have you ever had this moment when you order king crab legs and you pop that little thing off with the cracker and you reach in there and you grab one part of the crab leg and you're like, no way. Oh, my goodness. And the whole thing comes out like a big crab hot dog? That's happiness. That's it. That's happiness. It's the best as well. Because you don't even eat it at first. You're not just going to eat it. you got to show it. Hey, everybody see this? See my crab hot dog, huh? Huh? Yeah, I see you still digging around with that little fork. I don't even use the little fork. I just crack on with the end. Favor of God. Boom, I got a crab hot dog. I'm going to put butter on this eye. Mwah. Delicious. That's it. That's all this world has to offer because happiness is rooted in happenings. And when your happenings change, your happiness disappears. Like when you get the bill. All right, I'm just telling you. Holy man, I'm proud of them crab legs around here. So, But the peace that Jesus has, notice he says, peace, I leave you. Like it is available to you. He does not say, and I'm going to give you this combination, and if you get the combination right then, that's not how it works. That peace is not found in our circumstances, but peace is offered in the presence of the Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus Christ. How does that work? Here's how it works. If you go to Philippians chapter four, I think Paul describes this incredibly well. Philippians chapter four. Philippians is one of my favorite books in the Bible. Paul writes it from prison. It's also the book of the Bible that contains the words joy or rejoice more than anywhere else. It's a little tiny book. It's probably like two pages in your whole Bible. And Paul writes it from prison. Paul was a Christian missionary, gets arrested, he's locked up, and he writes this letter to his brothers in the church at Philippi. And I say that to you because it's in that kind of situation that he's going to talk about joy and rejoicing. Like he's a, he ain't sitting on the beach in Hawaii drinking a Mai Tai or if you're Baptist, a lemonade or whatever you do, okay? And he's like, you know what? I think I'll write to my brothers in football. Rejoice, because I am. Now the brother's in prison. He says things, before we get to chapter four, he says things like this, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Why? Because he is not sure if he's going to live or die. He says things like, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer. In other words, Paul is saying things like, if you want comfort, don't follow after Jesus. One day, he'll wipe away all the tears, but you cry a whole lot getting there. He says things like, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who was obedient even unto death. He says things like, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering. 
before he gets to chapter four. I say all that so that you will know. It's in the moments of pain that Jesus offers his peace. And it's in that kind of space that Paul pens these words, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And I know, in a room this size, I know. Some of you are like, I don't feel like rejoicing. Well, no problem, because the Holy Spirit's not a feeling. Paul didn't feel like rejoicing. And I'm not trying to beat you up, okay? This is why I'm trying to set you up where, where Paul is. Because I know what you think. You just come back on your little speaking trip from Chicago, eating your crab legs with your wife, walking around with your new pants. All right, easy for you to say rejoice. <laughs> I don't feel like rejoicing. I lost a loved one. I have no idea what to do with my future. I've been totally let down by somebody that promised they would love me till death do us part or I've let somebody else down, or my addiction is ruining not only my own life, but everybody around me, or I just heard the words cancer, or cancer is back, or maybe even worse, the person I love the most on this earth has cancer, or I'm on the verge of bankruptcy, going through a divorce, my kids won't talk to me, I lost a job a year ago, and I'm smart, and I'm educated, and I work hard, and I've applied everywhere, and my good-for-nothing brother-in-law gets a promotion. I can't even get one call back. Or a whole bunch of people. Once again, we found out another month went by, no baby, can't get pregnant. And then there are other people like, oh, no, I'm pregnant. And you think, I, I, don't, I don't feel like rejoicing. Or maybe the worst one of all, I mean, honestly, maybe the worst one of all is the person that wakes up every day and says, I have no idea why I am so depressed. I just don't know. All my friends look at me and look at my situation, and I got money, and I got family, and I have people that love me, and they go, what do you have to be depressed about? And I wake up every day and go, I don't know, but I just can't shake it. I don't feel like rejoicing. And it's in light of that that Paul says rejoice. And it's in light of that that Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. But peace I give to you. Well, how, God? Can you tell us how? He's going to. Verse 5, let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone. Like, what does that mean? In other words, I am going to give you the reason that you can rejoice. I am going to give you the reason that you can have peace. Here's why. The Lord is at hand. Even in prison, even in their hospital room, even at the funeral home, wherever it is, the Lord is at hand. In other words, you remember that promise that Jesus made, and lo, I will be with you forever? You remember when Jesus unpacked it in John 14? My peace I leave with you in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That's the how, the Lord is at hand. Okay, so what do I do? Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. How the heck do you do that? Can you imagine if you go up to Paul? Hey, Paul, I know you had a rough life, but listen, mine's not that great either right now, and I'm just really anxious. And Paul would say, do not be anxious. What are you, a Jedi? These are not the droids you're looking for. How does that work? How do you just not be anxious? Well, he's going to tell us, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. That's your part. You know what you do? You bring it to God. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. And what you do when you're anxious and what you do when your times are turbulent, what you do when you don't feel like rejoicing and you don't feel the shalom and the peace of God, then you bring that thing that you're anxious about, you bring that thing that you are worried about, and in prayer and supplication about everything with thanksgiving and what you're thankful about is that you have access to the peace of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and you bring it to him, and I mean you bring it. You bring it with the same intensity that you're worried about it. That's how Jesus says to pray. Jesus teaches this parable. He says, this is kind of what prayer is like. Imagine you're asleep in your house and you have a friend show up from out of town and they knock on the door and they ask for bread. You think, I don't have bread. So you run over to your neighbor's house and you're knocking on your neighbor's door and you're like, bro, I need some bread. And from the inside, your neighbor's like, I ain't getting up, man. A whole family's asleep in one bed. Everybody goes through that season of their life and here we are and I am not getting up to give you bread. But because you kept knocking and kept knocking and kept knocking, Eventually, you can convince that guy to get out of his bed and give you some bread. And if you can convince that good-for-nothing lazy guy asleep that night 
to answer your prayer, answer your request, how much more will your heavenly Father give you what you ask in my name? So I've been praying a long time. God says, ask again. That's the point of that parable. Ask again, ask again, ask again. Jesus says, ask me again. Let me tell you, if I use those words in my house, it is not good. I don't do like ask again. It's more like ask me again, see what happens, okay? That, that is not what he's saying. He's saying, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be made to God. That's your part. And then here's God's part. And the peace of God, that's what Jesus promised, through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that transcends understanding. This means when people that are watching you come up to you and say, how are you even standing right now? You legitimately go, I don't know. I don't know. The peace of God is transcended understanding. I can't explain it to you. I don't know. But God is guarding my mind. There's some things I'm not worrying about. There's some things that, that, that I'm, I'm just surrendering to Christ. And he's guarding my heart. I'm not letting my emotions control me. I'm allowing my emotions to be a tool given to me by God to navigate this thing called life. But the peace of God that transcends all understanding is guarding my, my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. And, and you pray and you pray and you pray not because God promises to change your, change your situation, but I can promise you this, he may change you through your situation to be more and more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. So the question I started with is, do you need a wonderful counselor? Do you need a wonderful counselor? Well, the good news is that you can access the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The book of James says, be ye not merely hearers of the word and so deceive yourself, but do what it says. So the way that we're gonna close our service here in the sanctuary at Bay Meadows is that we are gonna be anxious for nothing. How do I do that? Well, the way that we do that is by prayer and petition, by prayer and supplication. In everything, we're gonna make our request known to God. We're gonna go to the door of our heavenly Father's house who has been opened wide by his son, Jesus Christ. And he says, ask me again. And so some of you need the presence of God. Some of you need to know the presence of the Holy Spirit because you need power, you need strength, and you need courage. And I'm gonna invite you to come down and kneel down here and pray like crazy. And, and some of you, some of you need to be, be able to distinguish the truth and the lies. The enemy is lying to you like crazy. And you're gonna come and in prayer, and you're gonna say, Lord, I need you to tell me the truth so that I can believe in you and not and no longer believe the lies of this world. Some of you need to, to have what he has taught you be brought back to your memory so that you can, be, you can have an attitude of gratitude for what he has done for you yesterday instead of being anxious about tomorrow. And many of us in this room, many of us, more than anything else right now, we need the peace of God that transcends understanding to guard our heart and our soul in Christ Jesus. And to that, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. That's your part. Come on. And then his part, and I will give you rest, rest for your soul. The reason we build these altars and put these carpets down here, it's not just for the aesthetics of the front of the room. Here, Bay Meadows, the sanctuary, everywhere. In just a second, you're gonna stand, I'm gonna pray, and you don't need to wait till the amen. You need to fight your way to get down here and kneel before the only one that can do something about what's going on in your world. And you need to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And again, I am not guaranteeing that he will change your situation, but he will give you peace in it, I promise, because of his promise. Would you please stand and pray with me? And even as I start praying, you just get on down here. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we love you because you first loved us. God, what kind of God, what kind of Father of you are you that you would say, just ask me again, just ask me again. Just come to me, not when you've got it all worked out, but come to me before all the situation has changed, that, that you may change us in the situation. 
God, I thank you and I praise you that our circumstances do not define your love for us, but the cross does. What looked like the most awful circumstance in human history turns out to be the greatest blessing in all of eternity. Jesus, ultimately what we're saying is that we need you. Lord, we need you. Even in this very moment, we need you. And God, we, we cling to you by the love of a heavenly father, by the blood of Jesus Christ, and by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey church, won't you come?